Welcome to The Deal With Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. And I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Director of Digital Transformation at Winfield United. So Joel, today on the show, we are going to dive into corn seed selection for 2020. This year was different for a lot of farmers. What was some of the key learnings that we could take away to help select seed for next year? Well, I think this year, you know, in particular, I don't know, I I might have a hard time trusting the data that I have for my own farm just because I didn't plant under what normal would be. And one of my favorite farmers uh, always used to say, normal is just a setting on the washing machine. It doesn't exist in nature. (laughs) And so I don't know. I mean, I think this is a a great year where I'm going to have to look at other environments and see how hybrids performed across multiple environments. And my environment might not be the one that is next year's. So I think seed selection, you're going to have to expand your network this year to really hone in on the performance aspect of it. We think about seed selection right away. I think everybody's mind goes to oh, marketing and seed guides and this new hybrid that's coming out that's supposed to be 15 bushel better than anything on the market. My quirky mind goes to a project that you and I did a couple of years, well, maybe still ongoing, a few years ago on triangulating different answer plot locations and how the yield in between those actually respond. The first time I heard their project, I'm like, wow, this is exactly what we should be doing because just because my situation in field A it might be different than field B, but I don't have any reference points around or outside of field A and B to ever make that decision. Yeah. And I mean, I learned a lot traveling Southern Minnesota where I knew my plots really well, but then somebody would say Danube or, you know, one of those small towns that are in Western Minnesota. And I'd go, I just don't have any good reference point for there. So I think this is a great place where we talk about machine learning and data science can help unpack some of the marvels of different environments and help quantify those environments. So we're actually still working on that project to be able to project seed zones but actually group things. And the new mapping that we've brought together, the map of like planting zones is different than the standard zones that we've been used to in the past. So there are more to come on that project, but we're still working on ways of using data science to make seed selections. So you tell me in a roundabout way that I got kicked off the committee of that project without ever knowing it? <laughs> it always goes through a commercial staging process. So it's still coming around. Gotcha. So, I mean, when you think about seed selection, I think aside from the triangulation deal, I think going back to the next thing that comes to mind for me would be traits. Yeah. Like what's this trait thing, smart stacks versus double pro. And one of my biggest questions this year was, did we, because we had 30 below in a lot of cases in the Midwest this year, did we get cold enough in the ground to get rid of a lot of our pests? And then number two, because we've been so wet, did we drown them all? So what's our pressure going to be like for 2020? I think that's one of the biggest questions here that I've been getting this summer. Yeah, you look at these females and any of the corn rootworm females, and a gravid female can lay anywhere between, you know, what, 300 eggs all the way up to 600 Five, eggs? Five, six, eight, hundred, a yeah. thousand, call it. And so, you know, I just look at this and I go, 
every year has the potential for an epidemic of corn rootworms given the right environment. And so the corn rootworm pressure, it's a constant battle. If you were out scouting this year and you saw some beetles doing some silk clipping, and then, of course, depending upon which variant you've got, they're going to lay their eggs either in the soybean field next to it that you're rotating to corn next year or in the corn field in and of itself this year. Even, uh, you know, if they're out there scavenging for pollen, oftentimes in an alfalfa field, you can see them kind of drift over there. So I think this BT trait selection piece, you've got to have a handle on what your pressure was this last year. And it's almost like an insurance package for the coming year. Yep. In a lot of the questions of, hey, if you're too wet, remember that those beetles, northerns, westerns, are going to lay their eggs at different depths in the soil profile. Typically, the eggs hatch as a response to growing degree days, but it's not a growing degree day that our crop experiences. Remember, if you're four feet deep in the soil, you probably experience way less variation or way less heat than what you were if the egg was at six inches deep in the soil. So it's differences in timing of hatch. And when you're in the egg form, that corn rootworm is in the egg form, it's not susceptible to any moisture. So you don't really drown that out. And because we had really good snow cover this year, I think our soil temperatures, at least across the southern part of the state of Minnesota, that six-inch temperature did not get much below that 25-degree mark, which isn't enough to ever really take care of any of those insects that overwinter. So certainly getting the right trait, some of the traits have multiple modes of action in there and... Also, if it's severe pressure, you may consider putting an insecticide on top of it. But oftentimes, the trait versus the trait or insecticide, the trait always performs as good, if not better, just because it grows along with the root as that plant grows down. And so as those larvae hatch and start to feed on the corn roots, the trait is the best technology available to help reduce yield drag. So one of the things I get to see every year is through the answer plot system, I see the data come back. And this year we're testing 275 hybrids in the response to, or the we call them CHT trials, corn hybrid trials. And so we're testing 275 hybrids. And those 275 hybrids also include the same hybrids with different trait packages. So that data, if you don't believe the traits perform or if they do, really allows us to sort out, hey, if we have a high pressure feeding area in this zone, if we have a low in this zone, here's how the traits would shake out and we can actually go back and assess some of the pressure. So we hang sticky traps. I know the answer plot crews were out here the last couple of weeks looking and spraying out doing root digs in the answer plot. So as we get into fall, we'll do is we'll pluck out roots from a lot of these trials. We'll take a pressure washer, we'll pressure wash all those roots off, and we'll do a scoring mechanism for the amount of feeding that we get. The thing that I've seen in the last couple years in the Midwest is we've had really extreme corn rootworm feeding. The thing that's allowed us to come out of it is we've had some pretty decent rains in August. So if we get feeding in the beginning of August and we get rain, what happens is our roots just proliferate and we actually get a lot of new root growth late in the season. And sometimes that was beneficial and we really didn't see much of uh, differences in yield advantage. But if we do happen to get dry, that's when we see the big hitters and changes in yield advantage when it comes down to traits. So we talk about the R7 tool, John, and for how many years we've used that, sometimes you forget about what all the R's and the 7 mean. And so when we talk about this, you know, the right genetics, the right traits, the right crop rotation, the right population, the right crop protection, the right nutrients, those right factors involved in there. One of those things that we 
don't necessarily, you know, we, we, we kind of break it down when we talk about right genetics, the range of maturity. Now, this year we're coming off of, you know, prevent plant, you know, some people had their worst day of planting in April, some people had their worst day of planting in June. But it was really interesting to see how the maturities held in there. And you actually used some technology, a field forecasting tool, to assess what that potential was. Tell me about, you know, how you assess genetic potential along the range, the maturity ranges as the season progressed this year. I mean, first part of the story is as we were going along in the spring, a lot of the questions were, hey, if I plant this 104-day maturity, is it going to even finish and when is it going to finish? And so running different scenarios in the model and this field forecasting model allowed us to put scenarios in all the way from all your inputs, basically all your inputs, your planting date, any data that we had in the answer plot system that was related to that hybrid, and then run that scenario of, hey, what does this general moisture and nutrient uptake going to be. And the main thing that I was looking at and concerned about in the spring when we were planting this, when's a tassel date? And it was telling tassel date was in, you know, July 20th through the 25th, which if you're planting corn in 102-day, 104-day in the end of May, you go, no way that thing's going to tassel until mid-August. Guess what? It tasseled, and it tasseled within a couple of days of what that model was saying. So what a lot of that did was, okay, when's our tasseling date? But then what's the yield potential going to be? Some of the yield potential was still above 200 bushel in a lot of cases. So it was then taking the model another step further is, hey, based on where the conditions are and rest of everybody else planting corn, maybe what our beans are going to look like even if we do plant them now, what if we change up a little bit of maturity in corn and switch from planting beans back into planting corn and do some corn on corn? And actually, some of those corn on corn fields that got planted late May are some of the best planting dates, and they tasseled within a couple days of what the stuff that was planted planted in the beginning of May just because we never accumulated those GDUs and that corn plant was able to catch up. And so our tasseling dates are right now back in sync. And if we get this heat, we, we still have a really good chance of finishing a fairly decent crop that looks pretty darn good. That's a great example of using technology to manage the crop you've got. But the model is what gave us the confidence, right? We maybe already knew that, but it was reassuring to say, if I put this all on paper and organize it out in a good fashion, what is my confidence factor? And so the model and the technology is what gave us the trust and confidence. We particularly had a case this year in the South that uh, we had an agronomist who, you know, they planted late. And when you're an agronomist and you've got your mental models, corn, you know, first three, four or five stages, accumulates GDUs intermittently four or five days at a time. And all of a sudden you plant a little later and your corn crop is accumulating 20 GDUs right from the get-go because it's 70 degrees outside, and you're that much closer to soil warming up and mineralization happening to meet that optimal uptake curve, your mental models start to break down. And actually, one of the agronomists that I work with, you know, he goes, man, I think this, I don't know if I trust the model. The model is telling me that my yield is projected much lower, and it's telling us that we're not going to get much sunlight here for the next two, three months to finish this crop out. And he was concerned about how accurate the model was. And he was really concerned about that it was projecting yield so much lower because he was used to putting on more nitrogen to meet that demand. And this year, we incorporated the response to nitrogen scores in those hybrids. Now, that's one of the things you should consider in seed selection is if you have the ability to go out and influence that hybrid by putting more nitrogen on, or if it's a field that is maybe a little more susceptible to nitrogen leaching, or it's you know triangular in shape, and you just don't want to drive down corn all year long side dressing it. But we had incorporated the response to nitrogen into the model. 
And when he went out and he started to do hand checks as the maturity came along, he called me up and he goes, I was ready to turn this thing off and not use it. And the yield checks were really, really close, if not spot on. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think this is a place where, you know, when you're making your seed selections, that hybrid response to nitrogen is a great score to use so that you can go out and assess what your yield potential is, assess what that hybrid's ability to utilize nitrogen is, and make an application of nitrogen. So in seed selection, you know, kind of bring that piece through. It's seed plus technology now that's helping us bring that plant to its full potential. So in the past, it used to be, hey, we had all this information, but then you had to wrap your brain around the thought process of, okay, this GDU thing, this solar radiation, and we got a lot of rain, and where's that nitrogen going to be? And really what the model allowed you to do was put all that in there and you could have the ability to change it. If, hey, you thought you're going to get a wet August, you could go in and change the rainfall and make it a wet August and play around with those simulations. So now you had, so to speak, a nice paper pencil layout of what was going to happen through the season so your situation could be put into place versus having, hey, 35 years of experience, and I've seen this in one year that I recall back in 19-whatever, yeah. and then you have this, okay, here's what we did to solve the problem. The model allowed you to take that and kind of put it on paper and touch it, feel it, and make the decision. And in not all cases was it a yield, like, hey, I'm going to get high yield, let's keep planting. It was maybe, hey, we know we're going to get low yield, so let's monitor the nitrogen accordingly. Let's dial back some inputs. It's, it wasn't always about foot on the gas. Sometimes it was foot on the brake and trying to manage it that way too. So it allowed you to really see the situation and assess it versus just trying to kind of put a Charlie Fox trot of items together and then and then make something out of it is a lot of times what it feels like in season. Is that your, your pilot call sign? Yes, sir, it is. <laughs> so we've got traits with seed selection. We talk a little bit about crop nutrition with seed selection. John, what are the next things you're looking at for seed selection? So I think uh, with nitrogen, it's important to remember that RTN, response to nitrogen, six, it's worth 60 plus bushel. So, I mean, I think that's why we kind of started talking about that is where are the big bushels at? And the RTN is probably the biggest. The next one that I see the most important, especially in 2019, and we're, again, we're thinking about 2020, but in 2019, because of our later planting, this response to fungicide and the amount of disease that we've been seeing out there in the crop this year. And for the last few years, we've been testing response to fungicide on 225 different hybrids in our system. And uh, I know in 2018, the response was zero to 30 plus bushels as far as response with an average being 12 to 14 bushel response on those hybrids that were rated high. So I think in a lot of cases, you could put a scenario together to say, okay, I got, I got a model telling me I got high yield, I got a hybrid that's high response to fungicide, and I got a, maybe a weather pattern that's telling me I have more disease or I'm more prone to a lack of photosynthetic efficiencies. Let's make sure we make that plant health application. And I don't know if we can ever get to the point of like, I mean, a lot of times we'd say, okay, we're going to commit to a fungicide February 2020 in lieu of spraying it the cropping season. That's great. But I think that's kind of always should be like, hey, in the moment, in the season, how well does a crop look? What does a hybrid tell us for response to fungicide? And what are the growing conditions or seasons to help me manage through that process? And I think those are some of the key points that you can always add into your in-season decision to say, put your foot on the brake or, or keep it down on the gas and, and let it roll and plan for that success. So 
So responsive fungicide is probably the next most important after RTN. Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, when you look at that, I, I love that it can be a game time decision. One of the things that's interesting, though, about how we did our research is we actually started to go out and observe whether the plants had fungal diseases. And as we did that, we started to break down if the hybrid was absent of disease, did the hybrid have a high response to fungicide? Mm-hmm. And then what we found was, yeah, some hybrids, if you don't have disease pressure, are responding to the increased photosynthetic activity because they're lowering the respiration rates and they're lowering ethylene production. So it's keeping the plant what we might call stay green. It's keeping that plant alive longer. But certainly there's specific diseases that are coming in that different fungicides are more responsive to. And so I I love the fact that you can choose your hybrid's response to fungicide, that if you know that you like the plant health aspect and the standability and the harvestability of it, but you also need to make a game time decision. If you have a new disease, like what was the the new disease uh, last year, tar? A tar spot. Tar spot, Mm -hmm. thank you. And actually this year we started to use, well, this is the second year we've been using a model from Bayer to give us the potential incidence of a disease coming in. And so you can kind of make that game time decision with what the environment is doing, what the hybrid is doing, and maybe you've got the pathogen there, maybe the host is present, but that's one of those delayed decisions that can really yield positive ROI. So you talked about kind of the early days of RTF and how we stumbled across that. And now like the most recent days of, hey, we're testing 10 different fungicides on 225 different hybrids. And I'm the guy that gets to go scout them four, six, eight weeks after application on bottom, middle, top, disease one, two, three, and which percent of these leaves are infected by 10, 30, 40, 50%. And so we have that data. We put it in the spreadsheet so we can say, hey, that's weird. This hybrid has a high RTF, but if I go back and look at four to eight weeks after application, it had no disease. And you go, well, gosh, maybe it's a plant health play or maybe it's a photosynthesis play. And those are things that opened our eyes to this fungicide that we really never knew by genetic interaction that was occurring out in the field right before us. So I always see these family pictures of you hiking in, yeah. the, in the desert and, you know, out in the mountains and these, it, it always looks like the climate is a little bit uncomfortable. Is that just preparation work for your in-season scouting of corn? It's all about the training. And, <laughs> and when you drag the whole family through it, it just makes it that much more relaxing to be out in the field taking notes on corn. That's, that's good. I didn't know that that was a whole training exercise. Some people run marathons and triathlons and they train. You do the opposite. You run and do marathons so that you can scout corn. I'm ready to go. (laughs) All right, what are some of the other factors when it comes to seed selection, John? So I think uh, really then it gets down to the nitty-gritty, some things that you should be doing in the winter after those seeds have been purchased or that you start to, and it's farm placement plants. So what's your strategy around crop rotation? What's your strategy around planting population? And really this population, every year I get the question of, well, on the guide, it doesn't tell me, it says low, medium, high. Well, so give me a rate that you want to plant at. And I feel like, hey, the rate is your low, medium, high. Joel, what's your medium? And that's where you should put it. If you got a hybrid that's a high responsive population, you should get out of your comfort zone and you should be planting that at a high population. Whether that high population is 
32,000, which, I mean, if that's your comfort zone and you're out of it, then that's probably where that hybrid in your environment is going to thrive the most. So we try not to make connections to actual planting populations and leave that to the locality of where the region is being determined. But those are some definite factors that weigh in. You know, John, I think a lot of companies bring production information when it comes time to select a hybrid. But God, I'm kind of looking at my watch here and I'm going, we've just spent the last 25 minutes talking about management decisions. And I just think when I see the fall plot harvest results and I'm looking that, oftentimes it's such a, a performance-based decision yeah. versus the opportunity to manage that hybrid in season. So I have the luxury of interacting with the brilliant folks at Climate. And as they talk about bringing their seed selector forward, that's making some of these seed selections algorithmically, where it's understanding the yield, the crop rotation, the weather environment. You know, we talked about selecting for maturity ranges. It's bringing some of those decisions into an algorithmic form and saying this hybrid has the best potential on your farm. There's still the other side of the equation, which is, you know, how to manage that hybrid in season. So even if, you know, and I believe that seed selection can be done algorithmically, that we can leave that up to a computer model, the humans still interact with it. And I think we're going to see more of that coming out as technology starts to get better and better. But one of the interesting pieces here for me was as the seed selector and the first couple trial farmers that they talked about it with, the farm plan had to actually be executed. And I think about how some producers I've worked with in the past manage their seed sheds and they switch varieties late at night or maybe it rained and they don't switch varieties. They just take a full planter to the other side of the farm. One of the number one ways that you're going to have to be able to extract value from that seed selector tool, if it's algorithmically being chosen, is to have the discipline to manage your seed shed. So you hit briefly on it about the farm plan, but I really wanted to make sure we sort this out, that genetic selection, performance selection, I think it can be done algorithmically in the future. But the management of those hybrids, you're going to have to get it in the right field to start with and then manage it throughout the season. Yeah, so I've seen in some cases where you get to a seed shed and the hybrid isn't labeled by number anymore. They take the number off and you label it by field. So now all of a sudden, you don't have a, choice. You don't know the number of the hybrid, right? You just know that that hybrid has to go to that field. So I think that's the strength that a really good agronomist can play on the farm, right? Your partner in the crime of making sure that plan is executed is your agronomist and taking some of those decisions and saying, okay, we know that this one has to go here. There's some hybrids that we could go maybe across multiple acres and that's not necessary, but there's other hybrids where we know that there's a specific spot in place on your acres that that one needs to be on and making sure that it goes there is probably the biggest key to unlocking all the data and information that's going to come out. One thing to throw in there is out of those 225 hybrids that we're looking at on the answer plot system, and we just had an episode come out in July with Steve Anthover, director of answer plots. And so we talked a lot about the answer plot system with Steve. But one thing to look back is out of those 225 hybrids, a lot of them are experimental. 
So this thing is moving so quick that we have three years worth of data, two to three years worth of data on a new product that comes out that a lot of the times these local, say, data points or whatever yield trials that come out don't really get to see that. And so having that amount of data is critical to help launch a new product to say, hey, where is it going to go? Where is it going to best fit? And what is it going to, more importantly, what is it going to replace, right? Why is it better than what we have already? But you can get lost in all that because that's a lot of information. And so then I think it's so critical to find a partner in that to help you sort through the data, don't get lost in it, and make sure that you're using it and positioning it within that plan of how your strategy sees fit. Yeah, I'm still stuck back on the part where you said you actually take the hybrid ID off the tote. This is like... Don't uh, have a choice. Well, so like we did some digging in my yard, and of course you call the diggers hotline or go for state one call, as we call it in Minnesota, and they come out and put the flags out there. And then my eight-year-old goes out and picks the flags up and moves them to a different spot. And I'm going, well, I don't know if there's a cable buried there or not anymore. But you actually, is this like a psychology trick that you play with some of the people you work with to pull the labels off the box? Well, so maybe it's just, uh, it's like when the guy has the ball under the cups and you're moving the cups around the table. You just got to find where that ball's going. Somebody knows where the ball is. It's probably the guy that has the cups, right? But so it's maybe that's a little bit of an extreme example, but I think that's a way that you can gain commitment of, hey, we're going to do this because we have a plan and we know it's right to execute it. Yeah, that's like what, three card money is it, or a shell game. That's that's a yep. that's a good way to play that. All right, all right. So we've talked a lot about seed selection and gotten into some great management discussions. John, is there anything else coming into this fall here as you're thinking about seed selection that we should really be honing in on? So no, I really think to sum it up is is picking the partner and having that farm plan put into play. There might be some hybrids that are across your farm that don't have a RTF or an RTP or an RTM. Sometimes that's okay, but a lot of cases we want to make sure that we have that data to make that right decision. And it's really hard when you get in the process of, hey, I'm making this management decision on the crop because I have the data to make the decision. All of a sudden you stumble across a hybrid that doesn't have that data. You're kind of lost to, well, how did I ever make that decision before? How did I ever drive the tractor straight before auto steer? It's kind of like it's one of those things that once you adapt to it, the technology sits into play and it becomes part of your operation. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. If you've listened this long, you've obviously enjoyed the show. So please go and rate us and review us online or on the podcast app. For more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com. 